It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. This is Radio Orbit. I'll be back with you all in just a few minutes.
Side. I've been forgotten on 9th Street as well. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Welcome to the program, everybody. Good morning, good day, whoever you are, wherever, whenever you might be listening. Welcome to the program. It is Radio Orbit. Good to be with you tonight once again. Glad to be back here in the studio and talking with you live and in real time. And every Monday, the cutting edges in science, technology, nature, art, music, medicine, literature. Sometimes the strange and unusual. Always interesting and usually pretty cool. You're listening to it. It's Monday, June 29th, 2020. Hope you're all doing well out there and that things are good for you. Welcome to the show. Hope you're all enjoying the evening. Happy birthday to Ashley. Happy birthday to Johnny. And uh, anybody else out there who might have a birthday today. All right, a warm Monday night here in mid-Missouri. Nice moon out there. The sky's pretty clear. A little rain this weekend, but... Uh, Pretty nice overall last few days. Take a look outside. See what it looks like where you're at. Up and about. Out and beyond this crazy planet. Give you a little perspective on what's happening and where we are in the middle of it. Of course, once again, it's a lovely night to curl up and listen to Radio Orbit. Take care of a few necessities here and then we'll get on to the show. Always a big thank you to the amazing KOPN staff and volunteers making wonderful radio here for Many, many years, 24-7, 365, crazy great people, amazing collection of them up here that make it happen. The Mighty Fine 89 on Mondays, Woody gets it rolling with traditional classic country and Ameripolitan music. More country than ever from 3 to 6 p.m. with the Real Deal Country Show. Woody gives us the good stuff today as always and love that show. One of my favorites on KOPN. Following that up, 6 o'clock until 7, we got the tech radio guys with the world of crazy wild new technology and what it means to us. Kelvin takes over at 7 until 10 with jazz plus blues equals mind control. And just concluding, we had new wave radio theater. Awesome stuff from Alfred Hitchcock. Hope you enjoyed that, and uh, we'll do it again next week. All right? Good music, good talk, good news. 89 and a half on the dial, streaming all around this nutty planet at www.kopn.org. It's your imagination station, KOPN Columbia. Big thank you to all my listeners and people that uh, send me notes and uh, chat with me during the week when I'm not on the air. I appreciate the feedback from everyone. It's easy to get a hold of me if you'd like on the website at MikeHagan.com. You can send me email from there or you can connect with me via Twitter or Instagram. I have a new uh, account on a uh, uh, social media platform that's called Parlor. Uh, it's sort of an alternative to Twitter. And uh, see how that... Uh, I, I, I like to check out all the new ones um, and see if they survive and what the sort of uh, uh, what the what the atmosphere is in in the new place. It's so hard for a new uh, social media uh, sort of platform to uh, to really thrive because the ones that already exist and there aren't very many of them. You know, you got 
Facebook, Instagram, and I think they're owned by the same people. I think Facebook is owned by, or Twitter's, or I'm sorry, Instagram is owned by Facebook, right? Anyway, uh, then you got Twitter and um, YouTube is owned by Google, um, <clears throat> whatever Apple owns. And anyway, there's not that many. I'm sure I'm missing a few. You got TikTok and you've got, uh, um, what's the one with the uh, little ghost on it? Snapchat. Yeah. I don't know who owns that. But anyway, you know, there's a, a limited number. You can count them on, on two hands for sure, all the big ones. Um, and so to try to break into that into that sphere is going to be real tough uh, because they pretty much own the entire market. So anytime somebody tries to break into it, I'm always interested. There are a couple of YouTube alternatives that have tried to pop up um, and with limited success so far because none of us know their names. Um, we'll see how this uh, this one parlor does. There was one that called uh, that was called Gab that uh, showed up on the scene a little while back. That one got shut down uh, pretty quickly. Um, I forget exactly why hate speech or, or something, but, but that's, uh, interestingly, that, that, that's usually the, the, uh, the reason that they, that they get going. It seems that, uh, censorship is something that, you know, is alive and well. And, um, if you want a media platform that doesn't censor, I guess you got to make your own and, uh, YouTube certainly um, doing a lot of that these days. What, what do they call it? Um, uh, demonetizing. And uh, I don't know, you know, social media in general, you know, they just ban people for this, that, or the other thing. And, you know, I get, I get some of it, but, but I'm, I'm pretty much a free speech uh, advocate. Um, as long as you're not threatening or, or causing, you know, direct, uh, damage to a person's character. Um, you know, I don't know. I pretty much figure you can say what you want, but anyway, those days are pretty much long gone too. So, uh, we'll have to see how this uh, new parlor site, if they can, if they can keep it going. But at any rate, um, yeah, if you want to get a hold of me, uh, Twitter, Instagram parlor or best, uh, chances through the website at mikehagan.com. Okay. All right. Hi everyone. Cheers. Keep it up. I appreciate you, uh, sending me messages. I love hearing from you and feel free to do that anytime. All right. Whether you have something on your mind, like, uh, that's related to the show, maybe you've got a potential guest in mind or a musical artist that you'd like to hear on the program, or maybe a topic that you'd like to hear covered, whatever, uh, just send me a note and I'd love to hear what's on your mind. Okay. All right. Last week, we had uh, the amazing Andreas Antonopoulos. Nice little piece that he produced recently on rules. Rules without rulers, that is. And, you know, he brought up many, many interesting points during that talk last week. And among them was uh, the definition of the word anarchy. And anarchy kind of gets a bad rap because uh, people associate it with the word chaos, that uh, anarchy implies chaos. And that's really not true. Anarchy, if you really look at the word and what it means, it, it just means uh, no rulers. No rulers. Um, 
it doesn't mean chaos. Uh, chaos means chaos. Anarchy means no rulers. And Andreas presented a very interesting case to talk about how you can have rules without rulers. And the promise of open blockchain technology. Because that's what, that's what these new technologies actually offer us. The ability to create rules without rulers and have real consensus, not mob consensus, not to nine guys in a back room Federal Reserve consensus, real consensus. And that's what's scaring the hell out of everybody, actually, both the left, the right, the middle. Um, the idea of rules without rulers. And I love it. Anyway, Andreas Antonopoulos, if you, mi if you missed that, uh, you can check it out on the web. Uh, just go to the archives or get the podcast or whatever, okay? After Andreas, we talked about contact tracing and what a frightening concept this is, especially when you, uh, when you include uh, the new digital electronic uh, capabilities that will and are being uh, already, as we speak, uh, employed for this particular purpose. Um, we did space weather, a couple, a couple of news stories. That was about it. All right. If you missed the show last week or any of the older shows for that matter, they're on the web available in the archives at my website. Once again, it's MikeHagan.com. archives for the show, music archives, etc. Speaking of music last week, we had a songs from my friend, Andrew Ryan, a wonderful St. Louis singer, songwriter, producer, and we only did two hours of uh, programming last week. And we're only going to do two hours this week as well because we've got Eric coming in at two. And we've got to have the station clear for an hour before, uh, before he gets here. So um, because I played Andrew last week and we only had two hours, I'm going to keep playing Andrew this week for another two hours. And he's lucky he gets two shows in a row here. So anyway, um, another one from Andrew Ryan here in a minute, but one last thing, you might consider getting on the web and check out the Radio Orbit Forum. You can post stories there, media stuff, YouTube, BitTube, BitChute, Parler, Twitter, Instagram, whatever questions you might have. Uh, for other members, you can talk to people in the chat room, you can do whatever you like, you just go to MikeHagan.com and click over to the forum. And uh, lots of new members recently. Hello to all those folks. I appreciate everybody joining in. And uh, yeah, at the top of the forum, there's a pin post, actually, a pin post. And it is a pin post for the podcast. Yeah, if you want to join in on the Radio Orbit podcast, just uh, go to the website and it's pretty easy to get, get a hold of that. And, you know, this show is kind of late at night. It's 11 o'clock until 2 in the morning, normally 1 o'clock tonight. But normally, you know, it's middle of the night, 11 o'clock until 2. And it's also a three-hour program, and uh, you know maybe you don't have the uh, the will or the or the the wake to uh, stay up for the entire program. Well, you can just have this thing magically appear <clears throat> in your podcast player uh, every time that we put a new one up there on the web, and it's uh, simple and cool. All right, so yeah, check out the podcast if you like, and share that with your friends. Tonight, I have. Uh, Something for you that is old but super relevant. 
It is uh, shocking, frankly, interview that a man named Edward Griffin, G. Edward Griffin, did with a Soviet KGB defector named Yuri Bezmenov back in the early 80s. This particular interview was done in 1983, uh, maybe 84. But uh, anyway, Yuri Bezmenov was a former KGB agent. He uh, defected to the United States of America at great risk, uh, obviously, uh, to his own life and lived to tell an amazing story. And in my opinion, it's the story of what happened to America. And the story is pretty much over now, as far as I can tell. But for those of you that are nostalgic uh, and who are interested in history, if you really want to know what happened, I got about an hour and 20 minutes that's going to explain it. And if you think you're woke now, wait till the end of this program. Okay. All right. For the tunes, once again, we've got uh, Andrew Ryan. We had him last week. We're going to have him again tonight. Started the show off with a tune called Ninth Street. I'm going to wet my whistle. Play another one from Andrew. We'll come back with Yordi Bezmanov. It's Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. And this is Gwyneth.
every time that I come home As I get lost Deep in thought As I cross these currents To your heart listen to it here it's KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM Radio Orbit my name is Mike Hagan we're going to get right to our featured presentation of the evening in 1984 a gentleman that I interviewed 20 years later actually in September of 2004 I did a very interesting interview with a gentleman named G Edward Griffin if you're not familiar with Ed Griffin uh, you should be he's done some amazing work over many many years I'm not going to go into that right now, but if you want to find that uh, interview, go to my archives and look for September 2004, and his name is G. Edward Griffin. But uh, um, in 1984, Ed interviewed an ex-KGB officer and Soviet defector named Yuri Bezmenov, who decided to openly reveal the KGB's subversive tactics that were used against Western society as a whole, the U.S. in general, uh, or specifically. But anyway, Bezmenov explains how uh, the economy is destabilized and how the country is pushed into crises. Um, and it just says some things that uh, now in hindsight with 37 years or 36 years um, behind now uh, it's just absolutely fascinating to hear what he had to say in 1984 and the irony of that I don't have to tell you about um, at any rate this is 1984 KGB defector Yuri Bezmenov speaking to the amazing G. Edward Griffin and we'll go from there. My father was 
He is on the left here. My father was officer of the general staff of the Soviet army. He was inspector of land forces, Soviet troops stationed in countries like Mongolia, Cuba, East European countries. This is the picture taken at the entrance of my Institute of Oriental Languages. It's a part of Moscow State University. As every Soviet student, I was, quote unquote, volunteering for harvesting grain in Kazakhstan. By the end of my training in school, I was recruited by the KGB. This picture was taken on that day, and you can see again how happy it feels to be recruited by the KGB. Pay special attention to number of bottles on the table. One of my functions was to keep foreign guests permanently intoxicated the moment they land at Moscow airport. In 1967, the KGB attached me to this magazine, Look Magazine. A group of 12 people arrived to USSR from United States to cover the 50th anniversary of October Socialist Revolution in my country. From the first page to the last page, it was a package of lies. Our conversation is with Mr. Yuri Alexandrovich Bezmianov. Mr. Bezmianov was born in 1939 in a suburb of Moscow. He was the son of a high-ranking Soviet Army officer. He was educated in the elite schools inside the Soviet Union and became an expert in Indian culture and Indian languages. He had an outstanding career with Novosti, which was the, and still is, I should say, the press arm or the press agency of the Soviet Union, it turns out that this is also a front for the KGB. One of his interesting assignments was to brainwash foreign diplomats when they visited Moscow. And he'll tell us a little bit about how they did this and how they planted information which eventually wound up in the press of the free world. He escaped to the West in 1970 after becoming totally disgusted with the Soviet system and he did this at great risk to his life. He certainly is one of the world's outstanding experts on the subject of Soviet propaganda and disinformation and active measures. Mr. Bezmianov, I'd like to begin by having you tell us a little bit about some of your childhood memories. Well, the most vivid memory of my childhood was Second World War, or to be more precise, the end of the Second World War, when all of a sudden, United States, from a friendly uh, nation, which helped us to defeat Nazism, turned overnight into a, a deadly enemy. And it was very shocking because uh, all newspapers were trying to present an image of belligerent, aggressive American imperialism. Most of the things that we were taught is that United States is aggressive power, which is just about to invade our beautiful free socialist country, uh, that American CIA is dropping Colorado beetles on our beautiful potato fields, to eliminate our crops. And each schoolboy had a, a picture of Colorado bug on the, on the back page of his notebook. And we were instructed to go into collective fields to search for those little Colorado bugs. Of course, we couldn't find any. Neither we could find ma many potatoes. And that was explained again by the encroachments of the decadent imperialist power. Um, the, anti-American paranoia, hysteria in, in the Soviet propaganda was to such an, uh, of such a higher degree 
that many less skeptical people or less stubborn would really believe that the United States is just about to invade our beautiful motherland and some secretly hope that it will come true. That's interesting. Yes. Well, getting back to uh, life inside the Soviet Union or inside communist countries in general, in this country, uh, at the university level primarily, we read and hear that uh, the Soviet system is different from ours, but not that different, and that there is a convergence uh, developing between all of the systems of the world, and that really it doesn't make an awful lot of difference what system you live under, because you have corruption and dishonesty and tyranny and all that sort of thing. From your personal experience, what is the difference between life under communism and life in the United States? Well, life is obviously very much different for a simple reason that uh, the Soviet Union is a state capitalist economically. It's a state capitalism where an individual has absolutely no rights, no value. His life is nothing. It's just like an insect. He's disposable. Whereby in the United States, even the, the, even the worst criminal is treated as a human being. He has a fair trial, and some of them capitalize on their crimes. They, they publish their memoirs in their prisons and uh, get handsomely paid by your crazy publishers. Uh, the uh, differences, of course, in the daily life are very various, uh, depending on who whom we are talking about. In my own private life, I never suffered from communism simply because I was brought up in a family of high-ranking military officer. Uh, most of the doors were open for me. Most of my expenses were paid by the government, and I never had any troubles in, with the authorities or, or with the police. So, in other words, I, I would say I, I enjoyed, or I had good reasons to enjoy all the advantages of so-called socialist uh, system. Mm -hmm. My main uh, motivations to defect was, had nothing to do with affluence. It was mainly moral indignation, moral protest, rebellion against the inhuman methods of, of the Soviet system. Well, specifically, what did you object to? I objected, first of all, against oppression of my own dissidents and intellectuals. And that was the most disgusting thing that, that I witnessed as a, as a young man, young student, who was brought up at a very troublesome period in our history, from Stalin to Khrushchev, from total tyranny and oppression to some kind of liberalization. Second, when I started working for the Soviet embassy in India, I, to my horror, I discovered that we are millions times more oppressive than any colonial or imperialist power in the history of mankind. That my country brings to India not freedom, progress, and, and friendship between the nations, but uh, racism, exploitation, and slavery, and, and, and of course economical inefficiency to this country. Since I fell in love with India, uh, I developed something which by KGB standards is extremely dangerous thing. It's called split loyalty. When an agent likes a country of assignment more than his own country. I literally fell in love with this beautiful country, a country of great contrasts, but also great humility, great tolerance, and, and if philosophical and intellectual freedoms. My ancestors used to live in caves and eat raw meat when India was a highly civilized nation 6,000 years ago. So obviously the choice was not to the advantage of my own nation. I decided to defect 
and to entirely dissociate myself from that brutal regime. Mr. Bezmianov, uh, we've read a lot about the concentration camps and the slave labor camps under the Stalin regime. Now the general impression in America is that those things are part of the past. Are they still going on today, or what is the yes. status? Yes. There is no qualitative change in, in the Soviet concentration camp system. Uh, there are changes in, in numbers of prisoners. Again, this is uh, un unreliable Soviet statistics. We don't know how many political prisoners are there in the Soviet concentration camps. But we sure know from, from various sources that at each uh, particular time there are close to uh, 25 to 30 million of Soviet citizens who are virtually kept as slaves in forced labor camp system. The size of a population of a country like Canada is serving terms as, as prisoners. Incredible. So um, I would say that those intellectuals who try to convince American public that concentration camp system is a thing of a past are either conscientiously misleading public opinion or they are not in very intellectual people. They, they're selectively blind. They, don't, they lack um, intellectual honesty when they say that. Well, we've spoken about the intellectuals in this country and also the intellectuals in the Soviet Union. What about down at the broad mass level? Do the people in general, the, worker, the working people, the workers in general in the Soviet Union, do they support the system? Do they tolerate it? What is their attitude? Well, average Soviet citizen, if there is such an animal, of course, does not like the system because it hurts, it kills. He may not understand the, the reasons, he, he may not have enough information or, or educational background to understand, uh, but I doubt very much there are many people who are uh, conscientiously supporting the Soviet system. There are not such, such people in USSR. Even those who have all the reasons to enjoy socialism, people like myself, who were a member of journalistic elite, uh, they, they also hate system for, for different reasons though, not because they lack material affluence, but because they are unfree to think, they are in constant fear, duplicity, split personality, and this is the greatest tragedy for my nation. Well, what do you think are the chances of the people actually overcoming their system or replacing it? Uh, there is a great possibility that system will sooner or later be, be destroyed from within. There is a self-destructive mechanism built in, into any socialist or communist or fascist system uh, because there is lack of feedback because the system does not rely upon loyalty of, of population but until and until this soviet junta is being supported by the western so-called imperialists that is multinational companies establishments governments uh, and, let's face it, uh, intellectuals, so-called academia in the United States, is famous for supporting the Soviet system. Uh, as long as the Soviet junta will keep on receiving credits, money, technology, grain deals, and political recognition from all these traitors of democracy or freedom, uh, there is no hope, there is not much hope for, 
for changes in my country and the system will not collapse by itself simply because it's being nourished by so-called American imperialism. This is the greatest paradox in history of mankind when a capitalist world supports and actively nourishes its own destroyer, destructor. I think you're trying to tell us something. Oh, yes. Country. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to tell you that it, it has to be stopped unless you want to end up in, in gulag system and enjoy all the advantages of socialist uh, equality. Uh, working for free, catching fleas on your body, sleeping on, on the planks of, of plywood in, in Alaska this time, I guess. That's where Americans will belong, unless they will wake up, of course, and force their government to stop aiding Soviet fascism. Well, you told us a moment ago why you left the system. I'd like to hear the details of how you did it. It must have been a very dangerous thing. It was not so dangerous. It was crazy. Uh, first of all, because defecting in India is virtually impossible. Thanks to very strong pressure from the Soviet government. Excuse me, you were in India, India. on assignment at yes, that time. Yes, I was working for the Soviet embassy in New Delhi as a press officer. Mm -hmm. And uh, defecting for a Soviet diplomat is next to impossible. It's a suicide, as I said, because a great friend Indira Gandhi um, pushed a law through parliament which says, and I quote, no defector from any country has a right of political asylum in any embassy on the territory of Indian Republic, which is a masterpiece of hypocrisy. No other defector but a Soviet one needs a political asylum. So knowing that perfectly well, I, I, I planned a craziest possible way to defect. I studied contraculture in India. There, are, there were thousands of young American boys and girls with no shoes, long hair, smoking hush and marijuana, studying sometimes uh, Indian philosophy, sometimes simply pretending that they study. And they greatly annoyed Indian police and they were laughing stock of Indians uh, because obviously they, they were good for nothing students. I studied carefully where they congregate, what routes they travel, what language they speak, what do they smoke. And one day I simply joined a group of hippies to avoid detection of Indian police. I was dressed as a typical hippie with uh, blue jeans, uh, long kameez shirts, with all kind of nice decorations like beads, long hairs. Uh, I, I, I bought a wig because for several weeks I had to turn myself from a conservative Soviet diplomat into a very progressive American hippie. And that was the only way that, that I could uh, avoid uh, detection. It was very interesting experience, uh, but it was necessary because um, from my own knowledge as a, as a member of Soviet embassy staff, I knew that there were many cases when Soviet defectors were betrayed by Indian police and also some Western embassies played a very dirty role in betraying the Soviet defectors. According to our information, they were some, I wouldn't call them double agents, but simply immoral people working for, this, uh, for the United States embassy and uh, confining in, in people like this would be a suicide.
So I had to be extremely careful. I could not trust anyone. It, and that was, the, that was the reason for such a crazy way to defect. Well, had you been uh, caught in the act of trying to get out, what would have no. happened to you? Oh, uh, most likely I would end up in, in concentration camp. Uh, or, depending on the situation and on, on, the, on the whim of some bureaucrat and KGB, uh, maybe even executed. This is normal practice. Quietly, of course, not publicly. But that would be the end of my defection, of course. Well, when did you finally make it to the United States? Uh, in 1970, after about six months of debriefing in Athens by the CIA, and I presume FBI too, they let me go first to Germany, then to Canada. That was my decision. I had to change my identity to protect my family and my friends in, in USSR. And also, I was a little bit paranoid uh, knowing that both Soviet KGB and probably some double agents within the American system may be after me. So I wanted to settle down as far away as possible. Uh, I requested CIA to give me some kind of new identity and just let me go uh, on my own. And I settled in Canada. I was a student. Uh, I changed many professions from farm help and, and laundry truck driver to instruct, language instructor and broadcaster for Canadian Broadcasting Corporations in Montreal. Well, have you had any threats on your life or any uh, yes. unpleasant Uh In about five years, KGB eventually discovered that I am working for Canadian Broadcasting. Uh, see, I made a very big mistake. I started, talk, I started working for overseas service of CBC, which is similar to Voice of America, in Russian language. And of course, uh, monitoring service in USSR picked up every new voice. Uh, every new announcer, would, they, they would make it a point to discover who he is. And in five years, sure enough, slowly but surely, they discovered that I am not Thomas Schumann, that I am Yuri Alexandrovich Bezmenov, and that I am working for Canadian Broadcasting, and undermining beautiful detente between Canada and USSR. And the Soviet ambassador Alexander Yakovlev made it his personal effort to discredit me, he complained to Pierre Trudeau, who is known to be a little bit soft on socialism. And um, the management of CBC behaved in a very strange, cowardly way, unbecoming to representatives of an independent country like Canada. They listened to every suggestion that Soviet ambassador gave, and they started shameful investigation analyzing content of my broadcasts to USSR. And sure enough, they discovered that some of my statements were probably to, um, would be uh, offending to the Soviet Politburo. So I had to, to leave my, my job. And of course, subtle intimidations. They would say something like, please cross the street carefully because, you know, traffic is very heavy in Quebec. And um, Fortunately, I know about the psychology and, and the logic of activity of the KGB, and I never allowed myself to be intimidated. This is the worst thing. This is what they expect a person, a defector, to be intimidated. Once they spot that, that you are scared, 
they keep on developing that line. Mm -hmm. And then uh, uh, eventually you either have to give up entirely and, and, and work for them, or you, they neutralize you. They, they, they would definitely stop all kind of political activity, which they failed to do in my case, mm -hmm. because I was stubbornly working for the Canadian Broadcasting. And um, in response to their intimidations, I said that, look, this is a free country and uh, I am as free as you are. And I also can drive very fast. And um, gun control is not yet established in Canada. So I had a couple of good shotguns in my mm. basement. So welcome to visit me someday with your Kalashnikovs machine guns. So obviously it didn't work. Intimidation didn't work. So they, they tried different approach as I described, they approach on the highest level, on the level of Canadian bureaucracy. On that level they were successful. On that level they were successful. On individual level they failed flat. Mr. Bezmenov has brought a series of slides with him that he has taken from the Soviet Union and I think this is a good time to uh, take a look at the slides. Yes. Now the viewers will be able to see these slides as, as we talk about them. Yes, this is a collection of slides which are some of them are uh, snapshots from my family album. Some of them are documents which I smuggled from the Soviet embassy. And some are reproductions from local mass media. I usually show them to establish my credibility as, mm -hmm. as a defector. This is a picture of, of my native town, Mytishe, about 20 miles north from Moscow. Uh, characteristically, there is a statue of Comrade Lenin in the central square. Uh, this is myself at the age of seven. Again, characteristically, under the statue of Comrade Stalin, extending his friendly hand to peoples of the world. Uh, at that age, of course, uh, I was still idealistically minded young communist. And um, I still believe that sooner or later things will go for better. But I realized that the system stinks, that something is fishy, and that ideology is, is fake and the uh, propaganda about ad advanced Soviet agriculture simply didn't meet the criteria of reality. If they talk about uh, abundance of food and, and there is none in the stores, there must be something wrong. Um, my father was, he is on the left here, my father was um, officer of the general staff of the Soviet army. He was inspector of land forces, Soviet troops stationed in countries like Mongolia, Cuba, uh, East European countries. Were he alive today, most likely he would be inspecting Soviet troops in, in Nicaragua, Angola, and many other parts of the world. Fortunately, he died and he didn't see the disgrace because deep inside he was a Russian patriot. He didn't, he didn't like the idea of expanding Soviet military might, especially in the areas where, where we were not welcomed at all. Unlike many other military officers, he was reporting directly to the Minister of Defense bypassing KGB and diplomatic service. In other words, he was a trusted military professional. And my impression that this type of people are much less hawkish and adventuristic than party bureaucrats in Kremlin. When American mass media describes Soviet military as potentially dangerous counterpart for, for Pentagon, I simply laugh because I know better I know that the most dangerous part of the Soviet power structures are not military at all. Most likely, if they come to power in my country, they'll be more sensible negotiators for nuclear disarmament 
and withdrawal of the Soviet troops from many parts of the world. But if someone from the party structure or the KGB structure were to give the orders for a military they have to obey, they, they yes, would follow because they are, they, are, they are professional military. But they, you see, the triangle of power and hate in USSR is the party at the top, mm -hmm. the party elite, the oligarchy of the party, then the military and the KGB at the bottom. They hate each other. And uh, the most hated triangle uh, the most hated corner of the triangle is the Communist Party bureaucrats. They are the most adventuristic, senile megalomaniacs. They can start war, I wouldn't be surprised. Not the military. They know what war is. Yes. At least my father did. This is the picture taken at the, at the entrance of my Institute of Oriental Languages. It's a part of Moscow State University. I uh, graduated in 1963. And I now, excuse me, which one were you on? I, I am on the right. You're on the right. And on the left is my, uh, uh, my schoolmate, Vadim Smirnov, who later was an apparatchik in the Central Committee of the Soviet Union Communist Party. What is an apparatchik? It's, it's, a, it's a functionary, something like civil service uh, in British Empire. Some, someone who is never fired from, from the service. Right. He stays there internally. He may not be promoted too high, but he's a dependable um, bureaucrat who will stay forever. Uh, I studied not only languages but also history, literature, even music. I'm, I'm on this picture. I'm trying to learn how to play musical uh, Indian musical instrument. I even tried to look like an Indian when I was second year student. Not bad, really. Uh, yes, uh, actually, it was strongly encouraged by the by the instructors in my school because. Uh, these, the graduates of my school were later on employed as diplomats, foreign journalists, or spies. Uh, as every Soviet student, I was, quote unquote, volunteering for harvesting grain in Kazakhstan. This is the biggest uh, agricultural blunder of the Soviet government. Uh, but um, I didn't have much choice, of course, because the communist motto borrowed from the Bible says, those who do not work shall not eat and you can see me eating therefore I was working and you can see how happy I was about it. I went through a very extensive physical and military training uh, including the manure, uh, uh, including the uh, military games in, in uh, uh, areas, uh, suburban areas of Moscow and here for example we are on a tour in Arkhangelsk area. And by the end of my training in school, I was recruited by the KGB. This picture was taken on that day, and you can see again how happy it feels to be recruited by the KGB. Our conversation with Yuri Alexandrovich Bezmianov, who is a defector from the Soviet Union, a former propaganda agent for Novosti and the KGB, will continue after this message. All right, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. It is about, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, uh, 10 minutes, 8 minutes before midnight now on uh, the 29th of June, 2020. I'm going to play one here from Andrew Ryan, and we'll come back and we'll hear some more of this amazing and enlightening conversation between G. Edward Griffin and Soviet defector Yuri Bezmenov. All right, back with that in a few minutes. In the meantime, let's hear one called 
I'm not going to take too much time. We're going to do a quick one here. This one's one of my favorites from Andrew Ryan. It's called Caladiums from his uh, 2017 release called Across Currents. It's Mike back in a few minutes with G. Edward Griffin and Yuri Bezmanov. song there andrew ryan from across currents 2017 release that one's called caladiums andrew has a new record that was released just uh, a few months back it's called wild terrain you cannot delete yourself i have a free copy of that record if you'd like to check it out uh, give me a call at 573 oh i guess 443-8255 would be good um Give me a few minutes, though. Call that number, 573-443-8255. Once we get back to our interview with Yuri Bezmanov here, actually G. Edward, uh, G. Edward Griffin talking with Yuri Bezmanov in 1984, 36 years ago, and we have the benefit now of hindsight. And uh, 
really thinking about the things that he said back then. And wait till you hear what he has to say. Uh, this gets uh, incredibly interesting. We've got another, oh, 40 minutes or so. And uh, let's get right back to it. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. Check me out on the web at MikeHagan.com. And we're always streaming at www.kopn.org. All right, this is part two. Deception was my job. Once again, Yuri Bezmenov being interviewed in 1984 by G. Edward Griffin. This segment is called Propaganda and Mind Control, a conversation with Yuri Bezmenov, propagandist of the KGB. All right. Uh, as every student in USSR, I, I went through very extensive physical and military training and civil defense training, too. Unlike in the United States, where civil defense is virtually non-existent, zero. Uh, in USSR, every uh, student, whatever is major subject, has to go through very extensive four-year military and civil defense training. You can see me here with a group of students during one of the war games in near, near Moscow. Uh, the main idea, of course, is to prepare a huge reserve army of, of, of the USSR. Each student has to, to graduate as a junior lieutenant. In my case, it was administrative and military intelligence service. My first assignment was to India as a translator with the Soviet Economical Aid Group building refinery complexes in Bihar state and Gujarat state. At that time, I was still naively, uh, idealistically believing that what I was doing contributes to the understanding and cooperation between the nations. Uh, it took me quite a number of years to realize that what we were bringing to India was a new type of colonialism, thousand times more oppressive and exploitative than any colonialism or imperialism in, in history of mankind. Uh, but at that time, I was still hoping that, well, maybe it's not that bad, could be worse, and things may go for better. And I even tried to implement the beautiful Marxist motto, proletarians of all the countries unite. I tried to unite with a nice Indian girl. <laughs> and I was actually, I was fascinated by Indian culture, by, by the family life in, in this country. But obviously, Communist Party had different plans for my genes, so I had to marry this beautiful Russian girl. Uh, in the span of my career, I married three times. Most of these marriages were marriages of convenience on advice from the Department of Personnel. This is normal practice in USSR. When a Soviet citizen is assigned to a foreign job, he has to be married, either to keep family in USSR as hostages, or if it's a convenience marriage like mine, uh, so that the husband and wife are virtually informers on each other to prevent defection or uh, contamination by decadent imperialist or capitalist ideas. In my case, I hated that girl so much that the moment I landed in Moscow, we, uh, we were divorced and I, uh, I married later, second time. By the end of my first assignment in India, I was promoted to the position of, of public relations officer. You can see me here translating a speech by a Soviet boss. And on, you're on the right. I'm on the right here, yes. And it was, the occasion was commissioning of the refinery complex in Bihar, Barauni. 
back in Moscow, I was immediately recruited by Novosti Press Agency, which is a propaganda and ideological subversion front for the KGB. 75% of the members of the Novosti are commission officers of the KGB. The other 25 are, like myself, co-opted agents who are assigned to specific operations. In this particular case, you can see me talking to students of Lumumba Friendship University in Moscow. Um, this is the a, a huge school under the uh, direct control of the KGB and Central Committee, where future leaders of the so-called national liberation movements are being educated and selected carefully. And some of them have absolutely, they, neither this, for example, is a group of students from Lumumba. They don't look like students at all. They look more like military, and that's exactly what they were. They were dispatched back to their countries to be leaders of the so-called national liberation movements or to be translated into normal human language, leaders of uh, international terrorist groups. Another uh, area of activity when I was working for the Novosti was to accompany groups of so-called progressive intellectuals, writers, journalists, publishers, uh, teachers, professors of, of, of colleges. You can see me here in Kremlin. I'm second on the left with a group of Pakistani and Indian intellectuals. Uh, most of them pretended they don't understand that uh, we are actually working on behalf of the Soviet government and the KGB. They pretended that they are actually being guests, a VIP intellectuals, that they are treated according to their merits and, and, and their intellectual abilities. For us, they were just a bunch of political prostitutes to be taken advantage for various propaganda operations. Therefore, you can see perfectly well the senior colleague of mine on the left doesn't really have that much respect on his face. And myself, with a very skeptical smile, uh, typical KGB sarcastic smile, anticipating another victim of, of ideological brainwashing. This is how a, a typical uh, conference in Novosti headquarters in Moscow look like. Uh, sitting in the middle is Boris Burkov, the then director of Novosti Press Agency, high-ranking party bureaucrat in the Department of Propaganda. I am standing next to a famous Indian poet, Sumitranandan Pant. Uh, he was famous because he was an author, he was the author of a famous poem titled Rhapsody to Lenin. That's why he was invited to USSR and everything was paid uh, by the Soviet government. The pay special attention to number of bottles on the table. This is one of the ways to kill the awareness or curiosity of, of foreign journalists. My, one of my functions was to keep foreign guests permanently intoxicated the moment they land at Moscow airport. I had to take them to the VIP lounge and toast to friendship and understanding between the nations of the world glass of vodka, then the second glass of vodka. And in no time, my guests would be feeling very happy. They would see everything in kind of pink, nice color. And uh, that's the way I, I had to keep them permanently for the next 15 or, or 20 days. At certain point in time, I had to withdraw alcohol from them so that some of them who are the most recruitable would feel a little bit shaky, guilty, trying to remember what they were talking last night. That's the time to approach them with all kind of nonsense, such as joint communique or statement for, for Soviet propaganda. 
uh, that's the time they are the most flexible. And of course, what they didn't understand, they didn't realize or pretended not to realize that myself, who was drinking together with them, uh, was not drinking at all. I had ways to get rid of alcohol through various techniques, including special pills which were given to me by my colleagues. Uh, but they were taking it seriously. In other words, they, they, they would consume quite a large volumes of alcohol and feel quite uneasy next morning. Um, in 1967, the KGB attached me to this magazine, Look Magazine. A group of 12 people arrived to USSR from United States to cover the 50th anniversary of October Socialist Revolution in my country. From the first page to the last page, it was a package of lies, propaganda cliché, which were presented to American readers as opinions and deductions of American journalists. Nothing could be far from truth. These were not opinions. They were not opinions at all. Uh, they were the clichés which the Soviet propaganda wants American public to think that they think. That if it does make any sense at all. It sure does, because from the viewpoint of the Soviet propaganda, although there are some subtle criticism of the Soviet system, the basic message is that Russia today is a nice, functioning, efficient system, supported by majority of population. That's the biggest lie. And of course, American intellectuals and journalists from Look Magazine elaborated on that untruth in various different ways. They intellectualized that lie. They found all kinds of justifications for telling lies to American public. Um, this Excuse is. Excuse me. It was partly your job to make sure that they got these ideas yes. and accepted them as their own ideas. Right. Actually, even before they arrived to USSR and they paid astronomical sum of money for that visit, uh, they were submitted. Uh, this Novosti Press Agency developed so-called backgrounders. 20, 25 pages of information and opinions which were presented to the journalists even before they bought their tickets to Moscow. They had to analyze the situation and judging on their reaction to that backgrounder, the local Novosti representative or local Soviet diplomat in Washington DC would assess whether they have, whether they be given visa to USSR or not. Yeah. So but they it, were selected ahead oh, of time. Oh yes, they were, they were pre-selected very carefully. And uh, there is not much chance for honest journalists to arrive to USSR and to stay there for one year and to bring this uh, package of lies back home. This, for example, is a centerfold of the, of, of the Look magazine. They presented this monument erected by Communist Party in Stalingrad as the symbol, personification of Russian military might. And they said in the article, which is published on, on the side that Soviets are very proud of the victory in the Second World War. This is another big myth, a lie. No sensible people would be proud to lose 20 millions of their countrymen in a war which was started by Genosse Hitler and Comrade Stalin and paid by American multinationals. Most of the Soviet citizens look at this type of monuments with disgust and sorrow because every family lost father, brother, sister or child in the Second World War. Yet American journalists who were trying to appease, to please their hosts, presented this picture on the centerfold as the symbol and personification of Soviet national, uh, they call it Russian national spirit. And it was greatest 
greatest misconception and, and a very tragic misunderstanding. Of course, Look Magazine was not distributed in USSR. The main uh, audience was in the United States. But uh, I presume that many Americans, millions of Americans who were reading Look Magazine at that time, had absolutely wrong idea about the sentiments of my nation, about what the Soviets are proud of and what they hate. This is a group, you see the same lady with the sword in Stalingrad. This is the group of journalists. Myself is in the center with the same devilish smile. And Mr. Philip Harrington is on the extreme left there with, with his camera. Uh, this is the gentleman which was so deaf or so uninterested in what I had to say to him. Uh, this is the same picture, a blow up of the same, of the same picture. Uh, many, many guests from various countries, in this particular case from Asia and Africa, were taken by me as a Novosti Press Agency employee uh, for a tour across Siberia, for example. We would show them typical kindergarten, you see, nothing special by American standards, just nice children sitting, eating their breakfast or, or lunch. What uh, they could not understand or they pretended not to understand that this is an exemplary kindergarten. This is not the kindergarten for average person or average family in USSR. And we maintain that illusion in their minds. You can see myself under the red spot in the middle there uh, with the same business-like expression. I'm, on, you know, I'm doing my job. That, that's what I'm assigned to do and that's what I was paid to do. But deep inside, I still hope that at least some of this useful idiots would understand that what they are looking at has nothing to do with the level of affluence in my nation. This is a better picture which reflects the true spirit of, of the Soviet, uh, Soviet childhood. This picture was printed in a Canadian government publication by mistake. In the middle you can see children playing on a, sm a small courtyard and the caption goes this is a typical kindergarten in Siberia. What these idiots didn't understand, that it is not kindergarten at all. It is a prison for children of political prisoners. Mm. But there was not a single mentioning that what they were visiting actually was an area of concentration camps. And the job of people like myself to help them to n not to notice that they are actually talking to prisoners. Most of the children were dressed, especially on the occasion of the foreigner's visit. Uh, the, uh, of course, there were no corpses in, on the ground. There were no machine gun guards. And, uh, the, well, it looks not very pleasant, as you see. It's a, it, it looks dull, but obviously it does not create an impression that this is actually a prison. Well, did any of the journalists have the uh, curiosity to ask about uh, prisons and that kind of thing? Yes. They were in Siberia. This yes. is what you associate. Some of, yes. Some of them asked questions, and naturally we, we would give them, the, for the stupid question, we give them stupid answer. No, there are no prisons in Siberia. No, most of the people who, are, who you see are free citizens of USSR. They are very happy to be here, uh, and, and they are contributing to the glory of the socialist system. Uh, some of them pretended that they, they believe what, what I was uh, telling them. And um, most of them, we may discuss it later, what are the motivations of these people? Why would they stubbornly bring lies to their own population through their own mass media? 
I have various answers to this. There is not a single explanation. It's a complex of explanations. It's fear, pure biological fear. They understand that they are on the territory of an enemy state, a police state. And just to save their rotten skins and their miserable jobs, their affluence back home, they would prefer to tell a lie than to, to ask truthful questions and, and report truthful information. Second, most of these schmucks were uh, afraid to lose their jobs because obviously if you tell truth about my country, you will not last long as a correspondent of New York Times uh, or, or Los Angeles Times. They will fire you. What kind of correspondent are you? You obviously cannot find common language with Russians if they kick you out in 24 hours. So just by, by trying to be conformist to their own editorial bosses, they tried not to offend the sentiments of the Soviet administrators and people like myself. Deep inside, I hope they would insult my uh, or offend my sentiments. Obviously, they preferred not to. Uh, another reason, uh, I, did, I, I refuse to believe it, but obviously, there is another reason. Obviously, it's a greed. These people earn a lot of money. When they come back to USA, they claim that they are experts in my country. They write books which sells in million copies, titled like Russians, the truth about Russia. Most of it is lie about Russia. Yet they claim to be Sovietologists. They, they, bring, they play back myths about my country, the propaganda cliches. Yet they are stubbornly resist a, a, the word of truth. If a, a person like Solzhenitsyn is either defecting or kicked out of USSR, they try all their best to discuss to discredit him and to discourage him. I don't have much chance to appear on national network uh, with a true story about my country. But a useful idiot like Hendrik Smith or Robert Kaiser, they are big heroes. They come back from USSR. They say, oh, we were talking to dissidents in Russia. Big deal. Soviet dissidents are chasing American correspondents in the streets. And they are cowardly escaping from these contacts. For some strange reason, if you want to know more about Spain, you refer to Spanish writers. If you want to learn more about French, you read French or writers. Even about Antarctica, I bet you would read penguins. <laughs> Only about the Soviet Union, for some strange reason, you read Hendrix and Schmendrix and all kinds of Kissingers. Because they claim that they know more about my country. They know nothing or next to nothing. Or they pretend that they know more than they actually do. I would say they are dishonest people who lack integrity and uh, common sense and intellectual honesty. They bring back all kinds of stories like that. A kindergarten in Siberia. Omitting mm -hmm. the most important fact, it's a prison for children of political prisoners. Uh, another greatest example of monumental idiocy of American politicians uh, Edward Kennedy was in Moscow and he thought that he is a popular, charismatic American politician who is easygoing, who can smile, dance at the wedding in, in Russian palace of marriages. What he, did, what he did not understand, or maybe he pretended not to understand, that actually he was being taken for a ride. This is a staged wedding especially to impress foreign media or, or useful idiots like Ed Kennedy. Most of the, of the guests there, they, they, they had security clearance and they were instructed what to say to foreigners. This is exactly what I was doing. You can see me in the same damn wedding 
palace in Moscow where Ed Kennedy was dancing here, you see, smiling. He thinks he's very smart. From the viewpoint of Russian citizens who observe this idiocy, he's, he's narrow-minded, egocentrical idiot who tries to earn his own popularity through, the, uh, through participation in propaganda farces like this. Here you can see myself. On the right, again, exemplary Soviet bride. On the left, three journalists from various countries, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Obviously, they enjoying the situation. They, they will go back home and write the reports. We were present and on a regular Soviet wedding. They were not present on a regular Soviet wedding. They were present, they were part of a farce, of a circus performance. Uh, another thing which I had to sometimes risking my life to explain to foreigners. Time magazine, for example, is very critical of South African racist regime. The whole article was dedicated to the shameful internal passport si system where black blacks are not allowing to live with whites. For some strange reason, for the last 14 years since my defection, nobody wanted to pay attention to my passport. This is my passport. It also shows my nationality. And it, it, it has a police rubber stamp, which is called prapiska in Russian language, which assigns me to a certain area of residence. I cannot leave that area, same way as this black man cannot leave the area in South Africa. Yet we call South African government racist regime. Not a single Jane, Jane Schmonda or Fonda is brave enough, courageous enough to come to media and say, look, this is what happens in USSR. I send a copy of, of my passport to many American liberals and civil rights uh, defenders and, and all the other useful idiots. They never, they never bothered to answer me back. This shows what kind of integrity, what kind of honesty these people are. They're a bunch of hypocrites because they don't want to recognize a good example of racism in my country. This is the first stage of befriending a professor. You can see myself on the left with the same James Bond smile. On, my, on the right is my KGB supervisor, Comrade Leonid Mitrokhin and in the middle a professor of political science in Delhi University. The next stage would be to invite him to a gathering of Indo-Soviet Friendship Society. There he is sitting next to his wife before he is being sent to USSR for free trip. Everything is paid by the Soviet government. He was made to believe that he is invited to USSR because he is a talented, sober-thinking intellectual absolutely false. He is invited because he is a useful idiot, because he would agree and subscribe to most of the Soviet propaganda cliché. And when he is coming back to, to his own country, he is going for years and years to teach the beauties of Soviet socialism to uh, newer and newer generations of his students, thus promoting the Soviet propaganda line. Uh, the KGB was even curious about this gentleman. It may look innocent, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, a great spiritual leader, or maybe a great charlatan and crook, depending on which, from which side you're looking at him. Uh, Beatles were trained at his ashram in Hardwar in India, how to meditate. Mia Farrow and, and other uh, useful idiots from Hollywood visited his uh, school, and they returned back to the United States, absolutely zonked out of their minds with marijuana, hashish, and crazy ideas of meditation to meditate, in other words, to isolate oneself from the current 
social and political issues of your own country, to get into your own bubble, to forget about troubles of the world. Obviously, KGB was very fascinated with such a beautiful school, such a, a brainwashing center for stupid Americans. I was dispatched by the KGB to check what kind of VIP Americans attend this school. That's you on the left. Yes, I'm on the yeah. left. I, 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 I was trying to get enrolled in that school. Unfortunately, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi asked too much. He wanted 500 American dollars for enrollment. But my function was not actually to get enrolled in the school. My function was to discover what kind of people from the United States attend this school. And we discovered that, yes, there are some influential members of family, uh, uh, public opinion makers of United States, who come back with the crazy stories about Indian philosophy. Indians themselves look up upon them as idiots, useful idiots. To say nothing about KGB, who looked at them as, as, as extremely naive, misguided people. Obviously, a VIP, say a wife of, of, of a congressman, or, or a prominent Hollywood personality, after, the, after being trained in that school, is much more instrumental in the hands of, of manipulators of public opinion and KGB than a normal person who, who understands, who, who looks through this, this, uh, this, this type of, of uh, fake religious training. Why would they be more susceptible to manipulation? I just mentioned that because, you see, a, a person who is too much involved in, 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 in introspective meditation you see, if you carefully look, what, what Maharishi Mahesh Yogi is teaching to, to Americans is that all, most of the problems, most of the burning issues of today can be solved simply by meditating. Don't, don't, don't rock the boat. Don't get involved. Just sit down, look at your navel and meditate. And the things, due to some strange logic, due to cosmic vibration, will, will, will settle down by themselves. This is exactly what the KGB and Marxist-Leninist propaganda wants from Americans, to distract their uh, opinion, uh, attention, and mental energy from real issues of the United States into a non-issues, into a non-world, non-existent uh, harmony. Obviously, it's more beneficial for the Soviet aggressors to have a bunch of duped Americans than Americans who are self-conscious, healthy, uh, physically fit, and alert to, to the reality. Mm -hmm. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi obviously is not on the payroll of the KGB. But w whether he knows it or not, he contributes greatly to demoralization of American society. And he's not the only one. There are hundreds of those gurus who come to, to your country to capitalize on naivete and stupidity of, of Americans. It's a fashion. It's a fashion to meditate. It's a fashion not to be involved. So obviously, you can see that if, if KGB were uh, that curious, if they paid my trip to Hardwar, if they assigned me to that, to that strange job, obviously they were very much fascinated. They were convinced that that type of, of, of brainwashing is very efficient and instrumental in demoralization of the United States. Our conversation with Yuri Alexandrovich Bezmianov who is a defector from the Soviet Union, a former propaganda agent for Novosti and the KGB, will continue after this message. All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. I'd like to remind you all that this program is sponsored in part by Pizza Tree.
And if I can find my little little thing here, I'll read it to you. Yeah, uh, Pizza Tree. They're the best, actually. I love Pizza Tree Pizza. Uh, Offering pizza by the slice and specialty pies and delivery. They are located at 909 Cherry Street. Pizza Tree is open 11 to 9 every day except Monday. They were not open today, but they're open tomorrow. Well, today is Tuesday now. So anyway, open today and the rest of the week. And uh, on the web at pizzatreepizza.com or on Facebook. Again, over there, 909 Cherry Street. Check out Pizza Tree Pizza. Awesome stuff. All right. Quick one here from Andrew Ryan, and we'll come up with the final segment, or we'll come back with the final segment of G. Edward Griffin speaking with KGB defector Yuri Bezmenov in 1984. Fascinating and uh, important information. All right, this one is called City Lights. It's Mike on the web at MikeHagan.com and KOPN.org, streaming tonight and always. from Andrew Ryan that one's called City Lights we're gonna get back now to our conversation uh, actually conversation between G. Edward Griffin and KGB uh, KGB defector Yuri Bezmenov back in 1984 extremely revealing this is part three deception was my job cultural subversion and escape
this picture shows the part of the building of USSR embassy. And my supervisors on the left is Comrade Mehdi, an Indian communist, and on the right, Comrade Mitrohin, my supervisors in the secret department of research and counter-propaganda. It has nothing to do with either research or counter-propaganda. Most of the activity of that department was to compile huge amount, volume of information on individuals who were instrumental in creating public opinion. Publishers, editors, journalists, uh, actors, educationalists, professors of political science, members of parliament, uh, uh, representatives of business circles. Most of these people were divided roughly into groups. Those who would tow the Soviet foreign policy, they would be promoted to the positions of power through media and public opinion manipulation. Those who refused the Soviet influence in their own country would be character assassinated or executed physically come revolution. Same way as in the small town of Hue in South Vietnam, several thousands of Vietnamese were executed in one night when the city was captured by Viet Cong for only two days. And American CIA could never figure out how could possibly communists know each individual where he lives, where, where to get him, and would be arrested in one night, basically in, in some four hours before dawn, put on a van, taken out of the city limits, and shot. The answer is very simple. Long before communists occupied the city, there was extensive network of informers, local Vietnamese citizens, who knew absolutely everything about people who are instrumental in public opinion, including barbers and taxi drivers. Everyone who was sympathetic to the United States was executed. Same thing was done under the guidance of, of the Soviet embassy in Hanoi, and same thing I was doing in New Delhi. To my horror, I discovered that in the files where people were doomed to execution, there were names of, of pro-Soviet journalists with whom I was personally friendly. Pro-Soviet? Yes. They were idealistically minded leftists who uh, made several visits to USSR, and yet the KGB decided that come revolution or drastic changes in political structure of India, they will have to go. Why is that? Because they know too much. Mm -hmm. Simply because, you see, the useful idiots, the, the leftists who are idealistically believing in the beauty of Soviet socialist or communist or whatever system, when they get disillusioned, they become the worst enemies. That's why my KGB instructors specifically made the point, never bother with leftists. Forget about these political prostitutes. Aim higher. This was my instruction. Try to get into, into uh, large circulation established conservative media. Reach, filthy rich movie makers, intellectuals, so-called academic circles. Cynical, egocentric people who can look into your eyes with angelic expression and tell you a lie. These are the most recruitable people, people who lack moral principles, who are either too greedy or to uh, suffer from self-importance. Uh, they feel that uh, they, they matter a lot. Uh, these are the people who KGB wanted very much to recruit. But or, to eliminate the others, to execute the others, don't they serve some purpose? Wouldn't they be no, the ones they, they rely they on? they serve purpose only at the stage of destabilization of a nation. For example, your leftists in the United States, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the, of the uh, uh, subversion only to destabilize the nation. When their job is completed, 
they are not they are not needed anymore. They know too much. Some of them, when when they get disillusioned, when they see that Marxist-Lenin has come to power, they, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen, of course. They will be lined up against the wall and shot. But they may turn into the most bitter enemies of Marxist-Leninists when they come to power. And that's what happened in Nicaragua. You remember most of these uh, former Marxist-Leninists were either put to prison or one of them split and now he's working against Sandinistas. It happened in, in uh, uh, Grenada when Maurice Bishop was, he was already a Marxist. He was executed by, by a new Marxist who was more Marxist than this Marxist. Same happened in Afghanistan when uh, first there was Taraki, he was killed by Amin, then Amin was killed by Babrak Karmal with the help of KGB. Same happened in, in Bangladesh when Mujibur Rahman, very pro-Soviet leftist, was assassinated by his own Marxist-Leninist military comrades. It's the same pattern everywhere. The moment they serve their purpose, all the useful idiots are used, either be executed entirely, all the idealistically minded Marxists, or uh, exiled or put in prisons, like in Cuba. Many, many former Marxists are in Cuba, I mean in prison. So most of the Indians who were cooperating with the Soviets, especially without uh, the Department of of uh, information of the USSR embassy were listed for execution. Uh, and when I discovered that fact, of course I was sick. I was mentally and physically sick. I thought that I, I'm going to explode one day during the briefing at the ambassador's office. I would stand up and say something that we are basically a bunch of murderers. That's what we are. We, it has nothing to do with friendship and understanding between the nation and blah, blah, blah. We are murderers. We behave as a bunch of thugs in, in a country which, which is hospitable to us, a country which, which with ancient traditions. But I, I, I did not defect. I tried to get the message across to my horror. Nobody wanted even to listen, least of all to believe what I had to say. And I tried all kinds of tricks. I would, I would, I would uh, leak information through letters uh, or lost documents or something like that. And still I got no message. Uh, the message was not published even in the conservative mass media of, of India. The immediate impulse to defect was Bangladesh crisis, which was described by American correspondents as Islamic grassroots revolution, which is absolute baloney. Uh, there was nothing to do with Islam, and there was no grassroots revolution. Actually, there are no grassroots revolutions, period. Any revolution is a byproduct of a highly organized group uh, of conscientious and professional um, um, organizers, but has nothing to do with grassroots. In Bangladesh, it was nothing with grassroots. Most of the uh, Awami League party members, Awami League means People's Party, uh, were trained in Moscow in the high party school. Most of the Mukti Fauj leaders, Mukti Fauj in Bengali means People's Army, same as SWAPO and, and all kind of liberation armies all over the world, the same bunch of useful idiots. They were trained at Lumumba University and various centers of the KGB in Simferopol, in, in Crimea, and in Tashkent. So when I saw that India, Indian territory is being used as a, as a jumping board to destroy East Pakistan, I saw myself thousands of, of so-called students traveling through India to East Pakistan, through the territory of India, and Indian government pretended not to see what was going on. They knew perfectly well, the Indian police knew it, the intelligence department of Indian government knew it, the KGB of course knew it, and the CIA knew it. 
that, that was most infuriating because when I defected and I explained to the CIA debriefers they should watch out because East Pakistan is going to erupt any moment. They said I, 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 was, I was reading too, too many James Bond novels. Anyway, so East Pakistan was doomed. Uh, one of my colleagues in, in the Soviet consulate in Calcutta, when he was dead drunk, he ventured into the basement to, to relieve himself. And he found the big boxes which said printed matter to Dhaka University. Dhaka is the capital of East Pakistan. And since he was drunk and curious, he opened one of the boxes and he discovered not printed matter. He discovered Kalashnikov guns and ammunition in there. Anyway, it's a long story. When I saw the, the preparations for the, for the uh, invasion into East Pakistan, obviously I wanted to defect immediately. The only thing I couldn't, I couldn't at that time uh, make up my mind when and where and how. One of the reasons, of course, you see, I was in love with India. I mentioned it before. I spoke the languages. I socialized with people. And I understood that I had to, to act fast unless I want this beautiful country to be permanently and irreparably damaged by our presence. One of the reasons not to defect was, as you can see, I was living in relative affluence. Who the hell in, in, in the normal mind would defect and do what? To be abused by your media, to be called McCarthyist and fascist and paranoid, or to drive a taxi in New York City? What for? What the hell for should I defect? To be abused by, by Americans, to be insulted in exchange for, for my effort to bring the truthful information about impending danger of subversion. As you can see, I was living in quite a comfortable conditions next to swimming pool where Indians were not allowed, by the way. I was highly paid expert in propaganda. I had my family. I was respected by my nation. My career was cloudless. The third reason, how to defect with the family. To defect with the baby and the wife would be virtual suicide because according to law, that hypocritical law which I quoted before, the Indian police will have to hand me over back to the KGB and that will be the end of my defection and probably my life. Again, I cannot smuggle my wife because she was not quite sure what, what I was doing. She was not that idealistically involved and she was definitely not in, in, in the total picture of what I was doing for the KGB. She would be shocked if I, if I uh, you know, put her in my van and, and drive her to the American embassy or elsewhere. That would be a greatest danger. So again, I had to defect in such a way that my defection would look as simple disappearance. And there were many cases like that when the Soviet agents simply disappeared, either killed in action or thanks to their curiosity and, and their close contacts with radicals. Some of them were killed by the Marxists, by the way. It happened in many African countries when the Soviet KGB were killed by Africans themselves. Not because they hated Marxism-Leninism, but because they were simply trigger-happy bunch of unruly characters. If you give them machine gun, they will shoot. And some of the Soviets obviously were not careful enough to protect themselves. And they got into embarrassing situations when they were shot at the crossfire between factions of, of so-called liberation movements. Anyway, so I, I decided, as I said, to study the uh, counterculture. I decided this probably would be the best way to disappear. I socialized with characters like this on the left. You see, he's a barefoot American hippie. Uh, it took me quite a long time to study exactly what they were doing and how to mix with them. 
But eventually I did it. Most of Indian newspapers carried my picture and promise of 2,000 rupees for information about my whereabouts. But they were looking for the wrong person because they obviously tried to stop a young Soviet diplomat in white shirt and tie. And th this is how I looked at the time of defection. Nobody could possibly think that the Soviet diplomat would be as crazy as to join a bunch of hippies. That's you. Tra yes, travel India and smoke hush. So I made it literally uh, uh, almost like a Hollywood style uh, detective story. Uh, from under the nose of the KGB in Bombay airport, I landed a plane and I flew to, to Greece where I was debriefed by the CIA. That's basically most Th that's all for my okay, we can slides. The, we can turn off the projector, and that's very interesting. Well, you spoke several times before about ideological subversion. That is a phrase that uh, I'm afraid some Americans don't fully understand. When uh, the Soviets use the phrase ideological subversion, what do they mean by it? Ideological subversion is, is the process which is legitimate, overt, and open. You, you can see it with your own eyes. All, all you have to do, all American mass media has to do is to unplug their bananas from their ears, open up their eyes, and they can see it. There is no mystery. There is nothing to do with espionage. I know that espionage intelligence gathering looks more romantic. It sells more deodorants through the advertising, probably. That's why your Hollywood producers are so crazy about James Bond type of, of, of thrillers. But in reality, the main emphasis of the KGB is not in the area of intelligence at all. According to my uh, opinion and opinion of many defectors of my caliber, only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, active мероприятия in the language of, of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process, which goes very slow, and it's divided in, in four basic stages. Uh, the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy, exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The result? The result you can see. Most of the people who graduated in the 60s, dropouts or half-baked intellectuals, are now occupying the positions of power in the government, civil service, business, mass media, educational system. You are stuck with them. You cannot get rid of them. They are contaminated. They are programmed to think and react to certain stimuli in a certain pattern. You cannot change their mind. Even if you, if you expose them to authentic information, even if you prove that white is white and black is, uh, is black, you still cannot change the basic 
perception and the logic of behavior. In other words, these people, uh, uh, the process of demoralization is complete and irreversible. To get rid society of these people, you, have, you need another 20 or, or, or 15 years to educate a new generation of patriotically minded and, and, and uh, common, common sense people who would be acting in favor and in the interests of, of, the, uh, of the United States society. And yet these people who've been programmed and, as you say, in place and yes. who are favorable to an opening with the Soviet concept, mm -hmm. these are the very people who would be marked for extermination in this country? Most of them, yes, mm -hmm. uh, uh, simply because the psychological shock when, when they will see in future what the, what the beautiful society of equality and social justice means in practice, obviously they will revolt. They, 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 will, uh, they, they will be very unhappy, frustrated people. And the Marxist-Leninist regime does not tolerate these people. Uh, they, obviously they will join the links of dissenters, mm -hmm. dissidents. Yes. Uh, unlike in present United States, there will be no place for dissent in, in future Marxist-Leninist America. Uh, here you can, you can get uh, popular like uh, Daniel Ellsberg and filthy rich like Jane Fonda for being dissident, for criticizing your Pentagon. In future, these people will be simply squashed like cockroaches. Nobody is going to pay them nothing for their beautiful, noble ideas of equality. This they don't understand, and uh, it will be greatest shock for them, of course. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already. Uh, for the last 25 years, actually it's overfulfilled because uh, demoralization now reaches such areas where previously not even Comrade Andropov and, and all his experts would, would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned before, uh, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it until he, he is going to receive a kick in, the, in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his balls, then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. So basically America is stuck with, with demoralization and unless, even if, if you start right now, here, this minute, you start educating new generation of Americans, it will still take you 15 to 20 years to turn the tide of, uh, of ideological perception of reality uh, back to normal, no, normalcy and, and uh, patriotism. The next stage is destabilization. This time, subverter does not care about your ideas and the patterns of your consumption. Whether you eat junk food and get fat and flabby, it doesn't matter anymore. This time, and it takes only from two to five years to destabilize a nation, uh, it's, what, what matters is essentials, economy, foreign relations, defense systems. Uh, and you can see it quite clearly that in some areas, uh, in such sensitive areas as, as uh, defense and economy, 
the influence of Marxist-Leninist ideas in the United States is absolutely fantastic. I, I could never believe it 14 years ago when I landed uh, in this part of the world that the process will go that fast. Uh, the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. You can see it in, in Central America now. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure, and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. Normalization is a cynical expression borrowed from Soviet propaganda. When the Soviet tanks moved into Czechoslovakia in 68, Comrade Brezhnev said, now the situation in brotherly Czechoslovakia is normalized. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to bring the country to crisis, to promise people all kinds of goodies and the paradise on earth, uh, to, to destabilize your uh, economy, to eliminate the principle of free market competition, and to put a big brother government in Washington, D.C., with the benevolent dictators like Walter Mondale, who will promise lots of things, never mind whether the promises are fulfillable or not. He will go to Moscow to kiss the bottoms of, of new generation of Soviet assassins, never mind. He will create false illusions that the uh, situation is under control. Situation is not under control. Situation is disgustingly out of control. Most of the American politicians, media, and educational system trains another generation of people who think they are living at a peacetime. False. United States is in the state of war, undeclared total war against the basic principles and the foundations of, of this system. And, and the initiator of this war is not Comrade Andropov, of course. Uh, it's, it's the system. However ridiculous it may sound, the world communist system or the world communist conspiracy, whether I scare some people or not, I don't give a hoot. Uh, if, if you are not scared by now, nothing can scare you. But you don't have to be paranoid about it. What, what actually happens now, that unlike myself, you have literally several years to live on unless the United States wake up. The, the time bomb is ticking with every second. The disaster is coming closer and closer. Unlike myself, you will have nowhere to defect to unless you want to live in Antarctica with penguins. This is it. This is the last country of freedom and, and possibility. Okay, so what do we do? What is your recommendation to the American people? Well, uh, the, the, um, the immediate thing that comes to my mind is, of course, there must be a very strong national effort to educate people in, in, in the spirit of real patriotism, number one. Number two, to, to explain them the real danger of socialist, communist, whatever, welfare state, big brother government. If people will fail to grasp the impending danger of that development, nothing ever can help the United States. You may kiss goodbye to your freedom, including freedoms to homosexuals, to prison inmate, all this freedom will vanish, evaporate in, in five seconds, including your precious lives. Um, the second thing, I, the moment at least part of the United States population is convinced that the danger is real, they have to force their government. And I'm not talking about sending letters, signing petitions, and all this beautiful, noble activity. I'm talking about forcing United States government 
to stop aiding communism. Because there is no other problem more burning and, and urgent than to stop the Soviet military-industrial complex from destroying what is, whatever is left of the free world. And it is very easy to do. No credits, no technology, no money, no political or diplomatic recognition, and of course no such idiocy as grain deals to USSR. The Soviet people, 270 millions of, of Soviets, will be eternally thankful to you if you stop aiding a bunch of murderers who sit now in Kremlin and whom President Reagan respectfully calls government. They do not govern anything, least of all such complexity as the Soviet economy. So basic, two, two very simple, maybe two simplistic answers or solutions, but never, nevertheless, they are the only solutions. Educate yourself, understand what's going on around you. You are not living at the time of peace. You are in a state of war. And you have precious little time to save yourself. Um, you don't have much time, especially if you are talking about young generation. There's not much time left for convulsions and sexual masturbation uh, uh, to the beautiful uh, disco music. Very soon it will go, just, just overnight. If we are talking about capitalists or, or, or wealthy businessmen, they, I think they are selling the rope on which they will hang very soon. If they don't stop, if they cannot curb their unsettled desire for profit, and if they keep on trading with the monster of the Soviet communism, they are going to hang very soon. And it, they will pray to be killed, but unfortunately they will be sent to Alaska probably to manage industry of slaves. It's, it's simplistic. I know it sounds unpleasant. I know Americans don't like to listen to things which are unpleasant. But I have defected not to tell you the stories about such idiocies as, as microfilm, James Bond type, espionage. This is garbage. Uh, you don't need any espionage anymore. I have come to talk about survival. It's a question of survival of this system. Um, you may ask me, what is it in for me? Survival, obviously, because unlike, I, as I said, I am now in your boat. If, if we sing together, we'll sing beautifully together. There is no other place on this planet to defect to. A conversation with Yuri Bezmenov, former propagandist for the KGB, hosted by G. Edward Griffin. And uh, I don't have much to say after that. Just absolutely uh, stunning with 36 years of history uh, that we've lived since that conversation was had. And... That's what happened. Y'all know now what happened to America. <laughs> the, the, the irony is that, uh, is that Russia collapsed, uh, you know, about five years after that conversation was had. The, the USSR, the United Soviet Socialist Republic, uh, collapsed uh, at the end of 1989 with the Berlin Wall falling. Uh, and and I was in Germany at the time, actually, uh, and uh, very familiar with the with that whole particular period of uh, of history, and you know all the stuff that Bezmenov was talking about 
was not just a one-way street. In other words, the American propagandists were doing their best to undermine the Soviet culture and society as well. And they actually were successful. <clears throat> and we saw it at the end of 1989 and into the 90s after the breakup of the Soviet Union and the so-called balkanization of Eastern Europe. Now, what has happened in the United States has taken another 30 years uh, from the fall of the USSR. And in my mind, the reason that uh, is the case is pretty simple. It's that it's, it's a lot easier to convince a people, a population who are enslaved uh, under a totalitarian system with no liberty and no freedom, it's, it's easier to convince them that freedom and opportunity and individual rights and liberties uh, are relevant and legitimate. It's much easier to convince people that that is a better way than it is to go the opposite way. In other words, it was easier to convince the Russian people, the Soviet people, that being enslaved like they were and having no freedoms uh, was probably not a great way and that the United States had a better idea and that being freedom, liberty, etc., the protections of the United States Constitution. So as we were propagandizing their population to try to convince them that our way was better, we were successful uh, as, as that, uh, that huge conglomerate of states broke up again in 1989, 1990. Here it's taken 30 years more uh, because it's harder to convince people who used to be free uh, that it's better to be enslaved. It's a, it's a more difficult sell. So it took another 30 years. But the sale has been made, apparently, and is complete because, as uh, far as I can tell, the U.S. of A., as, uh, as we all knew it, and some people say it's a great thing. That's exactly what Bezmanov was talking about. But uh, whether you like it or not, it appears to be over. So, anyway... We'll see where it goes from here. And uh, I'm out of here. Two hours only tonight. Be back next week with a full three-hour show, I think. Uh, stick around. An hour from now, you'll have Eric P.'s Sound Legacy coming at you. And I'll play one from Andrew Ryan on the way out here. And then get back with you next week. Take care, everyone. It's Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM and on the web at kopn.org. And for me, www.mikehagan.com. Take care of yourselves, be cool, and be cool to other people. I'll catch you all later. When it's all falling around in front of you, Believe me, you won't know what to do. Star stairs, stratus, lattice, green canyon skies.
Promiscuous. 